Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode th- uh, 13 of the Mountains We Climb. In each of these episodes, we'll be diving into the, the mind of someone who has overcome significant challenge and adversity in their life so that we, as the listeners, can see what is really possible and what it really takes. I'm your host, Jordan Kilpatrick Smith, and today we're going to be exploring the journey of Mark Buggy and his journey of healing from PTSD his time in Afghanistan. Just before we start, I'd like to remind everyone that you can post your comments and questions live throughout all of the episodes in the comment section right below these videos on Facebook and on YouTube. Mark, thanks so much for being here with me. Thank you very much for having me, Jordan. I appreciate it. So where does your story start? Uh, I'm going to start in 2009. That's the year of the tour. Um, I think you know, I'm going to bounce around a bit because along with PTSD, I've also had addiction problems, right? I started drinking when I was 15 and that lasted for 23 years until I was almost 38. Uh, so that really affected the PTSD, how I was managing things. Mm. Okay. okay. So I'll go back to Afghanistan. Uh, 2009, the, it was um, my first and only tour. You know, you prepare for these things um, and the pre- preparation was good here, but some things that happen over there you just can't possibly prepare for um there's you know obviously the the obvious danger of um of war uh but you kind of get used to a lot of you know being attacked and all these type of things that you see in the movies the things that affected me most was was mostly seeing um you know innocent people harmed and and that's what you know i had kids at home and and seeing uh, children that were suffering uh, that was really really difficult for me so I uh, I worked in a job where um, I would I would listen to to intercepts and gather information and try to build intelligence to capture people, and I got to tra- travel all around many different parts of Afghanistan and uh, drive an armored vehicle and really uh, get to see the place and talk to the people. So I um I really liked the people there. They're great. They they wanted us there. They they just wanted a, a happy, healthy life. You know, they wanted to work. They didn't want war. So. I was very happy that I could uh, be a part of, of helping them there for yeah. that. So. so you said this was 2009. Did I catch yeah. that? Okay. So mm-hmm. 2009, you, you're you in Afghanistan. Going mm-hmm. back one step, what made you want to join the military? What got you I, in there? Yeah, I, I always kind of wanted to help people. I think, you know, when I was younger, you know, I, I was bullied a lot. And, uh, and just over the years, just... It's, it's always been in my nature and, and it took as, as an adult, I came back to that, you know, I, uh, and I, and I just joined when, when I saw kind of the state of things happening in, in the world and I wanted to go and help. I saw the people there suffering and I wanted to join and help. Yeah. And so the people in Afghanistan who are suffering mm-hmm. now, this is a genuine question. I, I don't mean for this to come off as anything other than a genuine question. Sure. What was the purpose of the Canadians in there so you show up as the canadian armed forces what was yeah. your job in afghanistan well it was you know typically people think canadians and peacekeeping mission right but yeah it, it was an actual war and um it was just because the country was being so overrun by you know taliban al-qaeda and other foreign fighters that you know people were were being terrorized and, and harmed constantly you know so it was just a completely it needed the world's help and that's why we stepped in for sure okay i understand so you're there you're helping fight off these terrorist groups 
mm-hmm. and your job is to collect the the intel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I uh, anyway like the like the the tour. Okay, that you see a lot of things. Like there's many dangers throughout the day, but um, I think you know there was four specific uh, instances there that really really um, that I had to deal with in my therapy for PTSD. But I'll talk about the one that affected me the most because that was the one I needed to to get a handle on to to be able to get everything else too. So, so I I, I worked in this little a little town called Belende, and there was a it's a FOB. It's called the Forward Operating Base. And so, what would happen is the military would go push forward and try to drive the Taliban out of whatever stronghold they were using, right? And, and a lot of times it was just someone's compound they'd taken over. So we would push them out, and then. And then we would, that would become our, our temporary, sometimes permanent base. And um, we would have locals that come and work on the, on the camps with us as well, because, you know, there was uh, just, just a way to make money. There's a lot of poverty there and it was good to build relations with the community and stuff like that. So these, these people would come in, like they, it was very dangerous for them to work for us because the Taliban saw them, you know, they would be, they would be seriously dealt with. And so they would get up at like four in the morning but it was dark, come in so they couldn't be detected, work all day and wait for dark again to go home. So at, in this particular place, like at all of them, I always, I always enjoyed talking to the kids there because, you know, I, I maybe as young as 10 and some teenagers working and cause I have my own kids back home. Um, and, but this one, this one boy in Belende who, who I really, we chatted all the time. He, uh, we just, we didn't understand each other. You know, he spoke Pashtun, I spoke English, but we always managed to do some kind of funny body language with each other to try to get uh, us to understand each other. And uh, we, we laughed a lot. So it was a nice part of the day over there in that mm. type of situation, right? So, so one day um, he's following me around and I need to go to work. And again, we don't understand each other. He seems a little more persistent this day. He's I'm having trouble you know, saying goodbye to him. And I, I look around and I see this big container of things that that we have there to give to the locals so and inside it is a soccer ball yeah i grabbed the soccer ball and gave it to him this kid's i'm i'm gonna say say probably around 12 years old he was very very happy right speechless just looked at it and because they don't have toys over there like i saw kids playing with each other like throwing rocks at each other you know that's they don't have toys so the soccer ball was just huge for him and he he took off and and i went to work and my day uh, ran on as normal and uh, the next day, we, I was working, and we heard a blast nearby, a big blast. It, it's very common. We, there was a very frequent blast around. We were always hearing some kind of uh, ammunition going off. And, but this one was really close. And when, when it's that close, you know, like I said, I, I, accessed, I had access to different hearing different people speak, you know, with all that we were trying to gather intelligence. So we would listen in and try to find out who was hit. Was it, you know, Canadian? Was it? one of our allies or, and, and it came in, the news came in shortly after that it was um, a couple locals, you know, two kids. And my heart just sunk right there because, you know, because it's kids. And, and then about a minute or so later, more information comes in that they were playing soccer. And I knew instantly <laughs> that it was the boy that I'd given the ball to. And um, my, the, first, my, the first thought in my head then, was if I didn't give him the ball, he would still be alive, right? And logically, I knew that this is, you know, I didn't put the landmine there. There's hundreds of thousands of landmines there. He, sorry, they were playing soccer ball and they stepped on a landmine. Yeah. And um, 
so I didn't put the landmine there, but uh, it, you know, the, the Russian war was there. There was hundreds of thousands left over from that and the Taliban were planting bombs. And, but for some reason, you know, my started to blame myself, uh, saying that I, it, he would be alive if I didn't give him the ball. Now, um, you know, you, you have life goes on in a war. Like I thought about him all the time. I was very sad, but I, it, it was, it was really fast paced there and you have to keep moving in order to stay safe. Right. So I finished my tour and I, I go home. And when I got home, uh, I had about two months off because it was right near Christmas. I got home in November and I had three weeks of post-deployment leave and then my Christmas holidays on top of that. So I just had all this time off and I started drinking very, very heavy. Yeah. At first, yeah, at first it was, um, kind of a celebratory thing to be home, but I didn't realize until looking back that, you know, I was really trying to get those thoughts out of my head. When were you able to drink in Afghanistan? Uh, there was one Saturday a month. It, depending where you were, you, you could get up, you could get, uh, two beers. Uh, if you were in one of the bigger bases, right? So I was out a lot, so I only got to partake in that once. But uh, And was that challenging for you since you said you had uh, been drinking since you were 15? You know, like, that's probably one of the only places where it wasn't as difficult to be without alcohol because it was just so, my mind was so occupied with what I was doing in that moment, you know? But like, any downtime, I really thought about, all I thought about in my downtime was seeing my family and drinking when I got home. So, yeah. but in the job itself, it was, uh, I was able to, to let that go and, and just focus on the job. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so when you came, how long were you in Afghanistan for? Uh, about eight months. Okay. So eight months there. Mm -hmm. When you came home, what was it? like for you to come back into Canada, which is an incredibly safe and peaceful country. Yeah. Like those are very different places to be. Right. Yeah. So what was that like for you? It was rough. Like there's a, it's a huge transition because you go on, on from being high alert there to like a safe place, like you said, and a sound can trigger you, a smell can trigger you. And, and you start, this started happening shortly after I was home. Like, um, Remembrance Day, I, I got, I went to to the to a parade, and and there was a cannon shooting off, you know, and, and that took me right back. Or my neighbor across the street, his bike tire popped. It sounded like gunfire. The smell of a sewer could bring me, you know. There was many things that would bring me right back, and that's when I I started getting flashbacks and everything too, right? So like this, life started getting really rough. Like I was drinking too much. My marriage broke down um, because of my behaviors and drinking, and and then. I I just the drinking got out of control and I was thinking more and more about this boy right and I I I came to a point one day at work um, and where I just broke down in my troop room and my 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 bosses were great they were very supportive they knew they they knew I needed some help so they I went down to the hospital and talked to the uh, to the to the addictions counselor there and they had an idea that. I probably had a drinking problem, but I wasn't being honest with them before, so they couldn't help me. But now I came in and said, I need to do whatever you tell me to do. I'm going to do it, you know? And, and when, uh, you, when you have a drinking problem, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you identify that? Because what I'm hearing is that the, there was a period of time where you, you didn't recognize 
that yeah that there was a drinking problem in that well no i i don't know like i i think i've actually known from the very first drink i've ever had that i had a drinking problem like really it went, it went back i still remember it clearly the very first night i took a drink i felt incredible guilt right away because i had promised my mother that i would never drink and then after that first drink when i was 15 i felt guilt and then i just drank as fast as i could to try to get rid of it so i've always known all along that there is you know there was something there right and, yeah so i i went to to treatment which was great it was about eight weeks in in vancouver vancouver island and I was able to work on that and become healthy, learn how to, I, I went in there not even knowing how, what, what, if, what my feelings were. I remember like I walked in and they, during one of the first meetings, they said, how do you feel? And I said, bad. And they said, bad's not a feeling, you know? <laughs> and so I learned all about shame and guilt and all of these things that, that I was feeling and that were kind of destroying my life. And it made a huge difference. You know, I came home and life was going great for about seven, eight months. Sorry, Mark, then, how long were you in that rehab for? Uh, almost eight weeks. Okay. And so it was like you were out there for eight weeks, day in and day out, you're yeah. in this rehab facility? Yeah, yeah. Are you okay if we we dive into that a little bit? Oh, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what was it like for you to finally admit that, okay, I have a problem and, and I need help to fix this? It's... It's very humbling, <laughs> and but but hum, I, I've learned how how great a strength humility is, you know. But because uh, mm -hmm. up until and we talked about it in recovery, it's very common for her addicts. Like, you you try everything your own way your whole life, and it's not going well. You end up in a in a treatment center, and you realize, well, my way doesn't work. I need to listen to other people. Right. And and I realized that a lot of the things I thought and things that I did. Were, were, you know, a lot of my own behaviors that were causing the problem and I couldn't blame others anymore. Right. Yeah. Huge. Mm -hmm. Taking responsibility yeah, yeah, for exactly. what happens in our lives. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, what was, what was the, the root cause of the drinking? Like what was the, the purpose? What was the drinking trying to solve for you? I, I think the root cause for most people is, is some sort of trauma. I think it's uh, difficulties that have been, things that haven't been processed properly, things that haven't been dealt with, things that are underlying and need to, uh, to, to be dealt with. I, I had a lot of self-pity and shame and guilt in my life and, the, these, and anger, and, and these things were constantly, were constantly uh, bugging me. And, and one other thing I learned too is when, when you start drinking heavy, you you kind of stop maturing emotionally too, right? So I would, anytime I was mad or sad or, or happy, I would drink and I wouldn't deal with what was going on. So right. I think that's what, in my later life, that is what really uh, made it a serious problem because when you become an adult, you can't just avoid everything. You have to deal with it and face it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so there were these, um, correct me if, if this is, not the way that you would word it, but there was any sort of emotional volatility, right? Emotions would, would go somewhere, some direction. Yeah. And then it was like, well, yeah, I'm not dealing with this right now. So here's some alcohol. Is that right? Absolutely. And as, okay. and as many, and as many and as fast as I could to try to forget. Yeah. And then, so in rehab, it was one of the things that they focused on was 
understanding the emotions and the feelings and just, you know, it's a huge part of the human experience and yeah. so few of us understand it. So is that right? They, they took oh, time uh, and taught you about that. Yeah. It's, 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 you're absolutely right. And, and it's, it's life skills that we need, you know, it's just that I hadn't learned those. And uh, so I was just kind of spiraling downwards because I, I just kept avoiding everything. And then once I learned how to, to, you know, be self-aware and find out what was going on, I could step back and say, Hey, you know, how do I change this? Or, you know, this, you know, you know, and work on it instead of, instead of running from it. So what I'm hearing is the first step was self-awareness. Uh, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. You're not acknowledging that there's something going on. And I mean, yeah, like, yeah. Self-awareness would be first because you know, I, I have to be aware of it before I can acknowledge it. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. And yeah. what became, and I, I imagine this is where the story is, is going next, but what became possible for you when that yeah. started to happen? There's a lot of hope is something that I hadn't felt in a long time, but there's also a lot of fear too, because I know about the journey I'm about to undertake. I know it's not going to be an overnight fix. Like they, they often said things like you drank 23 years. It's not going to take, you know, you're not going to fix it overnight. You need to, it's going to take years to, to feel, you know, you're going to feel, have glimpses of feeling better and glimpses of peace and serenity, but your life is not always going to be perfect. You just kind of learn how to manage what you have and who you are. Yeah. So that's, it's hope, it's hopeful, but at the same time, intimidating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just before we continue on with the story, you had mentioned that there were a few things from Afghanistan that really stuck with you, right? Yeah. Are you okay sharing the other ones as well? Oh yeah, for sure. Yep. There was, uh, one of the, like, the very first road move on our way out. Um, we, we were, had a big convoy and we had helicopter escorts and, and the helicopters would, would fly back and forth to look for anything suspicious on the roads. So they found something, uh, uh, in an underpass. It was, it looked like, uh, fuel containers, which was usually common use, commonly used to make bombs. So we stopped we got out of our vehicles and we would do something called fives and twenties where I would we'd search the vehicle five meters around to make sure there's no disturbances and we're safe. And once that was cleared, we go 20 meters around just to, just to, to keep everything safe and make sure we're not in the middle of a trap somewhere. And when I went onto my twenties, I ventured off, off the road and, and my, my crew commander just said, he was, he just came on and like, I could hear the convoy in one ear and crew commander in the other. And my crew commander came on and said, he said, Mark, stop. And I said, I said, what? He said, I think you're in a minefield. And he was looking at his map. I looked up at him and he's, he's looking at his map. And just as he said that, I noticed there were little piles of rocks in different places strategically placed. And I found out later from the locals there that the locals did that to let people know that there were bombs there so they wouldn't step on it, right? So he, he called the convoy and you know they called off the search and we went and we went back to the vehicle but I had to find he said do you remember which way you walked in and I said no and so I was looking around and I obviously avoided the the, the rock structures but that was my very first road move I'd only been there a couple of days I was still jet lagged I was really just really, throws you right in eh? yeah like it was it was exactly like it just really set the tone to like to for me to realize I have to be very careful here if I want to go home alive yeah. now in the landmines or in the, the minefields rather. Um, is it, 
are there indications that, hey, there's a landmine here, or is it often just totally flat and just, yeah? Yeah, yeah like, it's, it's, you, you can, the, the ones that have been there for a long time are really, you can't detect them because the ground has settled over top of them and stuff. But if you, if it's something that had, like, I'm talking the ones that were planted in, in the war with Russia, like, the, the, you couldn't, wouldn't be able to detect those unless someone knew and put rocks there. But if, if there was, you know, the ones that the Taliban were planting, you could be trained to look for disturbances. And we, we took a course. We weren't as skilled as the engineers that, that looked for the bombs, but you could, you could see slight disturbances in dirt and stuff like that. Or a lot of times they would, they were trying to be, they were pretty clever with it. You know, they would try to make it, they try to hide it. And um, you could find it, but if you, if you got lazy in, in the slightest, you could easily overlook yeah. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have the, the story with the soccer ball and the boy. Yeah, um, field. Yeah, and and another one. This happened just really maybe a day or two after. I was still we we just got to our first location, and we were working with uh, the American Army, and I was on a team of four people, four four soldiers and and a translator. So there was five of us, and we were working in this small part of the compound with the Americans, and our generator on our vehicle broke, and we had to order it. Our vehicle was it was mission essential equipment, so they they were flying in a generator to us right away. And we don't know when it's going to come in because it's so busy there. There's so much air traffic. We need to be ready at the helipad when it comes. So, because they can only stay for two minutes, they right. come in, the transport helicopters come in and drop and they have two fighter helicopters going around with them um, to protect them. And they don't want to stay on the ground too long because they're a target, big target, you know, to be shot at. So I'm waiting for this to come in and, about six in the morning, I hear a helicopter coming to the helipad and I, I wake up and I'm running towards the helipad and I'm just going straight as fast as I can, cutting across the, the, the helipad and I see the engineer, he starts waving his hands at me through the air, like really, really drastically and, and I didn't know what was going on. I was still jet lagged, I was tired. So I just continued to ignore him and I'm running right for the helicopter. And the only thing I, like I'm about 10 feet from it at this point and I, the only thing that made me stop was he was started running around kind of in a semicircle towards me, not straight towards me, but around in a circle. And that kind of caught my interest. Like, why is he doing that? And he came up and grabbed me and threw me on the ground and he pointed. And I was, I was 10 feet away from running into the rear rotor on the, on the helicopter. It, you know, it was spinning, so I didn't see it. I, I never, I'd never approached a helicopter before. I just wasn't, you know, prepared and I was and I was it was a new environment I was nervous and yeah and he and I found out later that he a couple years before he had seen somebody die that way so it it was really I saw the look in his face there was something like it it re-triggered everything that there was an investigation we talked about it and so anyway yeah I'd I'd wake up sometimes with a dream about to run into the propeller you know that happened for quite a while after you know so yeah um, yeah the the thing with then the, the most the one that bothered me the most was the um with the boy i uh the, the boy there was a boy i don't know you put the documentary up i'm not sure who watched it or not but that that boy like i gave him a soccer ball like i said earlier right and um he uh that was that was definitely the toughest one for me to deal with and uh i started i the flashbacks were coming with him and uh, yeah like i'll go back to where i was about six months eight months into sobriety and yeah. PT, PTSD got bad again. And, um, 
And then I became, I started becoming really concerned with my own kids' safety here. This is one of the things with, with PTSD because I was worried about them and my anxiety was, was over the top and my boys were young and I was afraid they were going to get hurt somehow. It started off with me thinking I was afraid to bring them places because I was afraid to leave them. So in my car, I'd have to look in my rear view mirror to make sure they were there. And then that wasn't enough. And I had to turn around and see them and then and, and, and physically touch them. And, and I remember even my son, who was probably five or six at the time, looking at me kind of funny, like, what's, what's going on? And it, it got worse yeah, at, the, at the house, too. If I heard any noise, I had a baseball bat beside my bed. I was uh, checking windows and doors all night. And if I heard a noise, I'd go outside. I thought someone was there. I'd, go, I'd have to go and check on the boys to see if they were okay. And all while I'm doing this, I'm thinking of the boy in Afghanistan. And I'm, and I'm you know scared of something happening to my own children I'd go up into the room and I would have to visualize they were there and once again that wasn't enough so I'd have to go over and I'd watch their chest rising with their breath you know and then and then that wasn't enough I had to actually physically touch them and feel with my hand the, the chest going up and down and one one night when I was when I was doing that I had this this vision came into my this thought came into my head of just, I was watching their ribs rise up and down. And I had this vision of, of smashing their ribs with my hand and, and, and I, it horrified me and I, I jumped back. And when, you, when you're ill, when you're, when you're mentally ill, mentally injured, your, your mind is your worst enemy. It started saying to me like, what, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? You're crazy. What, why would you do something like that? And I didn't, you know, I used a thought. Mm -hmm. I became, I became terrified to even be around them and they, you know, they were young and they were affectionate and they tried to hug me and I, and I couldn't be near them because I, I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, those thoughts that I had and it was making me really, really uncomfortable. And, uh, I, I, so what, it got really bad one day and I called their mother and asked them to come, asked her to come take them because I was just having a really rough time. And she, uh, she did. She, she came and she, she offered to help. She said, are you okay? But I, I didn't want to tell anybody what was going on in my mind because I thought I was crazy and I thought I would lose the boys. Right. So she took the boys and I, and left and I went out to my, um, to my, to my deck. It's, it's on the second level of the house. And I was just, couldn't get these thoughts out of my head. I was, I was really, really struggling. And, and I started thinking things like, Oh, the boys would be better off without me. And I'm just, I'm no good for them, for me. And if I dove off this deck, I could break my neck and die. These were the thoughts going through my head. And, and, and at one point, like I, I didn't even realize it was happening. I was starting to climb the deck and um, I had one foot up and I was in the process of standing up to jump. And, and I had this really, really important moment of clarity where I, 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 I realized where I was and I, and I saw in my head, my boys crying. And that at that second, I knew I needed to go for help. And I think, you know, the only reason I'm here today is because I saw my boys in my head and, and recovery taught me to ask for help when I, when I was struggling. Mm -hmm. if, if it wasn't for those things, I, I, I'm positive I wouldn't be here today. Yeah. That's, it's incredible um, that you had that, that vision, that clarity, right? At the, mm -hmm. the moment you really needed it, right? Absolutely. And, and I, I credit that to the, to recovery treatment, you know, helping me and, and, and this, I, I consider it a gift really, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I had it. Yeah. So PTSD, um, 
am I understanding it right that it's huge amounts of anxiety, paranoia, just like a constant state of heightened fear? Yeah. And then constant flashbacks in the mind is just always racing because you're always in highest alert. Yeah, absolutely. And then there there are moments of unbelievable depression too. But it's for me, it was more on the anxiety side than high alert side. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then so anytime something happens, because we're in such a heightened fierce state, you yeah. can't properly just manage what's going on, right? So where someone, when your mind's in a really solid spot, if you have a, a thought that's, you know, kind of out there, like you're driving down the road and you're like, well, if I just, you know, moved slightly to the side, I would hit these people. I think right. Yeah. at some point everyone's had a thought similar to that. Yeah. But in your case, it was like, that was like the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, right? That's right. That's right. You go to catastrophizing. 100% right away. And it's funny, you mentioned that example. Like when I, when I had my official diagnosis, the psychologist was telling me, you know, I, I never told anybody about that story about the boy's ribs until I saw the psychologist. Because, and I thought I was prepared for, you're a bad person. You can't, you're not responsible for your kids. And, and she, she told me that I was injured and these were thoughts and my thoughts don't determine me. And she gave me the example of, of, a, of a mother with postpartum who you know, there's, you've heard about, I don't know if you have, I, re, I had heard it. She said, you know, have you ever heard about how a mother with postpartum might think of putting their child into the washing machine or something like that? Mm. And, 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 and that she said, you know, you don't do it, but like, because you're sick, you start thinking you're a horrible person. But if you were healthy, that thought would be like, huh, you know, you'd think about it and move on and go on with your life. But this you're the mind works against you when you're injured and ill for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, where where did you go from there i i did uh once i was still in that that very humbling place where i would do whatever they told me to do and i i had a psychologist that i did uh cognitive behavioral therapy with i I saw a psychiatrist and we worked on a lot of mindfulness and, and and with medication i was doing aa i was doing spiritual retreats yoga retreats many many different things uh divorce courses everything that I, anything that was that was that would have been beneficial for me so um the cognitive behavioral therapy was a life changer for me because mm-hmm. you know we've been talking about these thoughts how we just some just catastrophize and go what cbt does it teaches you how to catch yourself in that moment and rethink it reframe it so because i start off with you know 100 percent whatever guilt or anxiety and i can It started off with a piece of paper and I would write down these things. And within five or seven minutes, I could bring my, my percentage down from a hundred to maybe 30. So instead of being in this catastrophe place, I'd be still, you know, anxious or whatever, but I'd be able to manage it because some of the anxiety was gone. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's really, that psychologist said this is something that they should teach in high school. I absolutely agree because you can use it in every part of your life for sure. Absolutely. I just want to, uh, put a quick note in here for everyone listening. Now's a fantastic time. If you have any questions that you want to ask Mark, um, I mean, all, all throughout the episodes, feel free to to put your comments, put your questions. We'll bring them into the conversation here. Yeah, um, sure. So back to what you said about CBT mm-hmm. and, and teaching these types of emotional and mental um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Like the the controlling of it, the understanding of it. Okay, yeah, right, right. The, yeah. the management of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do yeah. Do you feel like things would have gone differently for you if you had been taught this from a young age? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm not that old. I'm I'm 46, but even back when I was a teenager, you know, there was much more stigma about counseling and and all these type of things, right? So, I was embarrassed even the first time I went for counseling and you know, because of what I had been taught. I mean, you know, not taught, but what, what I witnessed and, uh, and just all the stereotypes. But yeah, I think my life would have been different had I learned how to uh, manage myself and my thoughts better for sure. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So fantastic. You, you went through these courses. CBT mm-hmm. was life-saving, life-saving for you. Mm-hmm. And you started to get a handle on things again. Yeah, I did. Um, so life was going pretty well and I, uh, you know, I, I guess, so, so my PTSD was the, the diagnosed in 2012. So they call that a delayed onset, right? They also mentioned that sometimes you could be triggered again and it can still affect you later on in your life. Right. So I started, I started working, I retired from the military and I was working at a hospital as a personal support worker and things were great. I loved the job but I was working a lot of shifts and away from my boys and I started really getting triggered again by things I had, I was taking care of three. It was within a couple months, I was taking care of three world war two vets and we, we happened to just, they knew I was military and we just, we just talked and, you know, we didn't get much beyond the, the scope of my job because I'm not supposed to, but, but there's a connection there. And, and that got me thinking of war again. And, and not being around the boys, even though they were well taken care of, their mother's great, and, and on my nights, my parents would take care of them. And but me not being there uh, started to really ramp up the anxiety again, and my fear for them being safe. And it came to a point where I had to stop working again, and I, I ended up doing another form of therapy called uh, EMDR, which is uh, eye movement desensitization and reek. Re, I forget the R. Anyway, EMDR. Yeah, sorry. Um, That's okay. Yeah, and this I'll, I'll put a link up after it and explain it. It's, it's, it's a really great form of therapy. And, and I had to really rework through everything again. And, and because I, I had, you know, I dealt with Afghanistan with CBT and I was still using those techniques. Um, my counselor suggested that we go back even further uh, to anything as early as I could in my life that didn't sit well with me because sometimes these unresolved things will trigger, you know, the things later in our life. So I did this intense work with him and that was fantastic as well. Like, and I, just the combination of CBT and EMDR, I'm a, I'm a big fan of learning and, and multiple types of healing. And I think they all complement one another. So that was, the, I, you know, I knew it's, it's possible that it could come up again, but like it's been good for a couple of years now, ever since I've done the EMDR, um, I'm much more, better at just kind of accepting, you know, I'm going to have some tough days uh, and I'm okay with that. Like a lot of times I can just own it and just let it happen. And cause I know it's going to get better, you know, eventually. Um, it, that's, that's, that was a big part of the healing as well, because you start to being a bit of a perfectionist as mo as most um, addicts are, you, you, you feel like I should be here by now. This shouldn't be a problem anymore, but yeah, you learn to accept it. Hey, I've come really far. You know what? And, and if I'm having a bad day, that's okay. It's not the end of the world. You know, I can just 
let it happen and, and, and I'll get better. Don't worry. Yeah. So the really interesting thing that you just said there was um, the link between perfectionists mm-hmm. and addiction. Oh, big time. Yeah. What do you think that's about? I think it's, um, for me, it was really insecurity. You know, um, I think that I wanted to portray to everybody that I was this, you know, when I was younger, this guy who was all together and I wanted to be a tough guy and I wanted everything to look perfect. And, you know, as a, as a, as a youngster, I didn't realize that nobody's perfect and, and life is not perfect. So when you're trying to, when you're really insecure and you think everybody's watching you, you're doing your best to make it look like you're perfect. So no one can laugh at you. Yeah. This, this was the case for me anyway. And, uh, so I just, you know, I, 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 I learned thankfully that it's, that there's no such thing. And, and when I was able to get let go of perfectionism and folk, like that's an AA saying is progress, not perfection. And when I was able to focus on the progress, I was able to really be a lot kinder to myself and, uh, and continue to heal for sure. I love that. That's such an important message for, you know, regardless of where people are in their suffering, because depending how uh, philosophical you want to get, the human experience is just different forms of suffering. Yeah. Um, But perfectionism is a really common one that I think isn't often really talked about, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I, I had no idea until I was in, recovery that I was a perfectionist, you know, 30, 30, 38 years old. And I was offended when they called me a perfectionist. You know, I, I had no idea. And then when I, when I looked at myself, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I, I am. And I'm very arrogant and I'm very insecure. And I, you know, and it was just eye opening to, to see that I was living this life. I didn't even know who I was, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was that like for you to see this whole side of yourself that, that was there, but you just weren't ready to? I love humility. That's, that's the biggest thing. <laughs> it's been the biggest gift in my life, you know, and it's been the biggest teacher because in those moments of realization, when you discover these things, you have flashbacks of people telling you the same thing over the years that you didn't listen to, you know? Right. And some of these people planted seeds in my mind and that helped me to accept it in that moment. But then there's also people who I didn't, I blame them for a lot of things. And and in these moments, I would remember many people that, oh, they were, they were right, you know, and I, I was wrong in that situation. So it's, you know, at first, at first it's kind of, you feel sorry for yourself, but now I, I'm at a point where I can laugh, you know, I can admit I'm wrong and, and, you know, it, it's a much better spot to be for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. We have a comment from Alex. Um, he said this in third person, but I'm going to read it to you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it says, Mark, you're an inspiration. Uh, you've been sharing your story for some time now, and I greatly appreciate your willingness to do so. Uh, and thank you. You know, just myself, I'm going to tag on to that. It's, it's such an honor for, for us to be here and you to share this, this with us because I think PTSD is still largely misunderstood by mm-hmm. the public. You know, like I'm a healthcare professional. I do a lot of mental health work. And PTSD is one of those things that I just, there's just a lot of unknown for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. really, really thank you for this. It's, it's, I'm, I'm really happy to do it. And, and I, I, one thing that I learned in all this recovery process and is how much PTSD there is that's undiagnosed and that you would see this in your profession, right? Mm-hmm. Like 
in, in AA, I could not believe the amount of uh, women th that I met that had been sexually assaulted. And they, and they, and these, these poor, these suffering people would think they don't have PTSD because they're not in the military, you know? Oh, I, how could, how could it be PTSD? I've never been to war. I'm like, your trauma is worse than what I experienced. You know, if I can't imagine going through what someone went through experiencing that. Yeah. And so a lot of people live with it, just thinking that they have to deal with it on their own. Um, but there's a lot of great resources out there that can help us or community groups or, you know, people you trust, as long as you talk to somebody, it's so helpful. Yeah. So what advice would you give to someone who's struggling with, with their form of suffering? I, I, I'm a big fan of asking for help. Um, just, it's important to find someone you can trust. You know, I know I talk openly and tell my story to everybody, but that's not for everybody. And I understand that. So I would recommend professionals, you know, some kind of counselor, your doctor and to set you in the right direction. But if you have close friends and family that you can talk to as well, you can, you can build a whole bunch of resources. I found it difficult in the beginning. If I had an appointment for one hour in a day, let's say with a psychologist, that was great. But then what, what about the other 23 hours when I'm by myself? Mm -hmm. I needed to, I needed to find, you know, a community. I needed to find people that are healthy that I could be around because my mind worked against me and I could, I could change paths very quickly. So I would recommend, please ask for help wherever you think it's best. And I, I, I would, I think a doctor would be able to put someone in the best direction for that or, or a counselor. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there anything uh, in your story that we haven't covered? Did, did we finish? Did you, did we get up to the point where you are now? Well, yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah, we, I could talk all day about this, but it, it's, mm -hmm. but I, yeah, I think we, we've covered a lot of it. And I think we've covered, we've done well. Um, you know, today I'm, uh, I'm almost nine years sober next month. I'll be nine years sober. Congratulations. Yeah, that's thank amazing. You. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a big, big milestone for sure. So, um, I don't, you know, it took about four years, maybe five years where I still kind of wanted to drink sometimes, but now I'm at the point where instead of, you know, when I'm stressed, instead of thinking I want to drink, you know, to deal with it like I used to, I think, thank God I don't drink now because I would just make everything worse. And that's just a relief to be tipped. That's huge progress for me where I can have that thought and realize, well, I don't even want to drink, you know, to deal with this. So, yeah. And I, and it still makes me quite happy. So I, but you know, I'm, I, I'm uh, doing all right. I'm, I'm retired. I, I do a lot of things to keep myself busy and, like I said, it's, it's, it's okay. It's never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be healed. I'm never fixed. You know, it, it's, I, you learn how to manage all these difficulties that we have in our lives and my, my life, my difficulties, I've been so fortunate to have so many good people help me. And that's why I talk so openly. I, I want to pass on what's been given to me. Yeah. So, yeah. I like to think that, you know, there is no like quote fixed or yeah. it's, we're all just works in progress. What yeah, do you think absolutely. about that? Oh, hundred percent. I don't think the work ever stops. Uh, mm -hmm. It'll never, it'll never be, it'll never be done because, because there's always something to learn. It's, it's when I become unteachable is when I start to make myself suffer. Suffer. Yeah. yeah. So what has this challenge of PTSD done for your life? We, we looked at what it do, did to yeah. your life. What's it done for your life? I, I in the last couple of years, I've only heard the term post-traumatic growth. I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? Yeah. 
I, you know, um, they, the, 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 the idea, as I understand it, is, you know, that your life does go a different direction because of the things that happen. And, and you're, you're possibly doing things and learning things that you might not have had you not had that incident happen, right? So I, I never say it's, I'm happy that, that this thing happened to me, but, or like, I can't imagine someone who's a victim of sexual assault being at that place where, oh, I'm glad that that happened because here I am now, right? But it, it does definitely set us into a different direction where we can make choices in our lives to get to make things better. And, um, and it's, 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 it's made me more open to community and building relationships. And cause I used to isolate a lot and, and I tried to do everything on my own and, and, and life wasn't as good as it is today. So I just think that, uh, had, had I not had these experiences, um, I probably would have maybe just continued on the way I was going with drinking and everything and, and just going downhill. But this, this kind of showed me the healing showed me that I was a good person and that people are good and we're all part of one family. And I want to, and I want to experience that in a healthy way. That's awesome. Yeah, um, and what advice would you give to someone who's struggling right now or to the, the Mark who was in the deepest parts of, of what was going on for him? I would, I would just, I, I, you know, listening is important, being able to, to listen to someone that's struggling and kind of gently guiding them to something. Because I find I, at that time when I was struggling too, there was like a lot of arrogance and everything, like I said, a lot of defensiveness. And, but I would just let someone know that I love them that they're worth it, you know, and that there's help out there. I would, I would also let them know that it's not going to be easy, but it becomes manageable. And life is so much better managed that way. It's those little victories that are the biggest things in your life for sure. And it's worth it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share, Mark? Um, I, I, I think, I think that's it. Like I, um, I just, I'm just really happy to share uh, my story and, and and pass on my mistakes <laughs> that I, so mm -hmm. others won't. That's what actually Jim used to say to me. Uh, you know, we both know Jim. Uh, mm -hmm. He would say, he would say, I want you to learn my mistakes so you don't have to make them. And then uh, I always remember that and um, and pass on the wisdom that's been given to me. So I'm I'm happy to do it. And I just, I just want to spend the rest of my time here being a good father, being sober and, and uh, sharing my story and hopefully I can leave something positive behind, you know? Yeah. For anyone listening, Jim was episode one of the mm -hmm. mountains we climbed. So um, if you want to hear about Jim's story, you can also go and check that out. Yeah, it's a great story. So now the question I, I like to ask you as a listener, what are you going to do with this? Don't just let this information fall to the wayside. What are you going to do with this? How are you going to implement it into your life? Who can you share this with? who needs to hear this story or who could benefit from it? Is it a group? Is it a community? Is it a single friend that's struggling? The more we can share, the more help we can bring. Thank you so much, Mark, for being here with us today, for no, sharing your story so openly, for, for giving us your lessons. Mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate it. And I know everyone listening does as well. Yeah, well. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you inviting me. As always, 
I will be here next week with another episode with another incredible story. Um, And until then, have an awesome week.